Good afternoon and welcome back to Dark Histories from the Secret University. Lovely to have the Turkish edition, Turkish edition of Fairies, A Dangerous History just out in that country. We've got a Brazilian edition coming fairly shortly and a Japanese one out already. If anyone's interested in further language uh, translations, do let me know. I've got the rights to the translations of the book. It's just over a hundred years ago that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published what was surely his strangest book. The Coming of the Fairies appeared in September 1922. I'm going to talk today about the whole extraordinary saga before and long, long after that book and long after Conan Doyle went to his grave, uh, believing that these were genuine photographs of genuine fairies taken by two Yorkshire cousins, Francis and Elsie. And the subject of fairies being real is something I'll hold back for a, a later episode because it's such a big and surprising subject, not one I thought I'd have to deal with seriously when I began the book, but I had many surprises and that was probably the biggest one in that research. What's interesting about this saga, I think, is what it says about the era in which it all began, but also what it says uh, about the amazing kind of folkloric status the photographs acquired. They became a kind of British national treasure uh, and a source of amazing power. So let's dive in now to this amazingly ironic comic, uh, beautiful in many ways, and surprisingly uh, complicated story of the Cottingley Ferry photographs. In December 1920, the fairies came to London. For once, they were not rehearsing the latest Christmas panto, and although they had travelled all the way from Yorkshire to the great capital of the empire, they were not in the least shy or intimidated. From the pages of the Strand magazine, their photographs stared out at gawping Londoners, and their champion was none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself. In July and September 1917, two Yorkshire cousins, Francis Griffiths and Elsie Wright, had taken two fairy photographs at the Beck beneath their home in Cottingley, because Elsie's mother, Polly, was interested in theosophy. These presently caught the attention of Edward Gardner, a prominent member of the Theosophical Society, uh, and next they came to the attention of his associate, Arthur Conan Doyle. Thanks to the arduous labours of Joe Cooper, on whose work much of the following depends. I recommend uh, his book on this if you want uh, the kind of ultimate source on the whole thing and quite an amazing personal adventure for Cooper who was uh, no soft-headed character. He was a, a war hero of World War II. Thanks to the arduous labours of Joe Cooper, we know that Doyle was initially sceptical of these first two photographs. He was not alone. Kenneth Stiles, a fairy authority of the day, expressed his suspicions to Doyle, as did physicist and paranormal researcher Sir Oliver Lodge, who was perhaps the first to note the sprite's oddly Parisian hair. But matters changed when in summer 1920, Gardner travelled to Cottingley and the girls managed to take three further fairy photographs. 
In summer 1921, a medium, Geoffrey Hodson, spent much time in Cottingley with the girls. Given what the girls say about Hodson, it's worth adding that I have read his uh, book or one of his books on fairy sightings, and I think he was the real thing. Uh, what he says about uh, fairy creatures does add up with a lot of other strange paranormal stuff about the power of thought, particularly. Though no new photographs resulted, we still have many minutely detailed descriptions of fairies allegedly seen by Hodson and the cousins. Doyle's own attitude, though still fluid, now became at times almost messianic. In his tellingly titled, tellingly titled 1922 book, The Coming of the Fairies, he writes... The series of incidents set forth in this little volume represent either the most elaborate and ingenious hoax ever played upon the public, or else they constitute an event in human history which may in the future appear to have been epoch-making in its character. Seen as a whole, this book seems to display a man still getting to grips with the whole affair, but at his most optimistic, Doyle is fervent indeed. I must confess that after months of thought, I am unable to get the true bearings of this event. One or two consequences are obvious. The experiences of children will be taken more seriously. Stop sniggering at the back there. Cameras will be forthcoming. Other well-authenticated cases will come along. These little folk who appear to be our neighbours with only some small difference of vibration to separate us will become familiar. The thought of them, even when unseen, will add a charm to every brook and valley. The recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is a glamour and a mystery to life. You may or may not know that the word glamour had a much kind of heavier uh, and denser kind of connotation in uh, culture for uh, much of history, meaning uh, basically magic, uh, and that you could in fact glamour somebody in a perhaps negatively magical way. Doyle then goes on to compare the whole matter to the European discovery of the Americas, seeing the girl's spiritual world as a similarly life-changing new continent. Readers will by now probably notice how the once perilous magical glamour of the true fairies has here taken on a very different shine. We might add that for the spiritualist who had lost both a son and a brother to the First World War, those heavy ruts sound grimly like the tracks of wheeled cannon. Notice too, though, an internal contradiction. Can these new camera-friendly fairies really be both familiar and mysterious? For decades, the photographs and Francis and Elsie played an artful game of cat and mouse with sceptics and the media. Doubters were already vocal in the 1920s. Having referred to one fairy's up-to-date dress and bobbed hair in March 1921, the Daily Mail found the pictures useful artillery. Two years later, during an outburst of indignation at new photographs exhibited by Doyle, claiming to show, quote, massed spirits of dead soldiers ho hovering over the crowds at the Whitehall Cenotaph. Remember that Doyle has lost uh, a brother and a son to the war. That this memorial, again, quote, the 
Daily Mail, a learned journal then as now, should become the centre now of sensational theories absolutely unproved and probably as grossly faked as the famous photographs of Hampstead Heath fairies with gauze wings and bobbed hair is revolting to hundreds of thousands of men and women in this country. Our learned reporter does not explain how they had managed to interview all these men and women or why the fairies had fled Cottingley for North London, nor is it clear why the emphatically Christian paper objects to the spirits of war heroes looking down from heaven on their loved ones. Once again, fairies sit very low here in an implicit hierarchy of supernatural beliefs. At a 1927 clairvoyant demonstration in Dover Town Hall, one Howard Bradley showed how closely the Cottingley photos were bound up with the validity of spiritualism per se, when he asked, is it not a fact that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's fairy photographs have proved, proved to be taken from a well-known advertisement? Doyle himself seems to have gone to his grave in 1930, still persuaded of the genuineness of the images. But the story lived on and grew. When a Daily Express reporter tracked Elsie down in May 1965, she already sounded rather ambiguous. As for the photographs, let's say they are pictures of figments of our imagination, France's and mine, and leave it at that. Cooper, who cites this, also gives an interesting moment from a Yorkshire television interview of 1976. Referring to Samuel Hodson, uh, to Geoffrey Hodson, the supposed fairy seer, the television presenter, Austin Mitchell, states, You told him you saw fairies. Were you pulling his leg or not? Francis, no, we saw them. Both women, however, now laugh and admit that they had at times played mischievous games with Hodson, describing to him non-existent sprites in the belief that he was a phony. In 1978, the American magician and arch-sceptic James Randi had the results of supposedly cutting-edge computer analysis published in New Scientist. The report emphasised, among other evidence of fakery, the strings holding up the fairies. Although no such strings ever existed, they nonetheless set Randy's mind at rest and helped him confirm what he thought he already knew. It was, in fact, the more open-minded Cooper who first heard the truth in September 1981. A faintly ominous phone message from Francis, there are things you should know, resulted in a drive to Canterbury, where Cooper was asked to wait in a coffee shop while Francis, interestingly, paid a brief perhaps confessional, visit to the cathedral before rejoining him at their table. Francis eyed me, writes Cooper, with amusement. She said, from where I was, I could see the hat pins holding up the figures. I've always marvelled that anybody ever took it seriously. Cooper later states, uh, my whole world shifted and I had no words. He was said by his uh, children uh, in later years to have had a nervous breakdown at this point and it seems to have triggered the collapse of his marriage and as we've seen this was uh, no soft-headed character, a fighter pilot from World War II. Dropping back to that coffee shop table and that fateful moment in Canterbury 
we have a little uh, shift in tone when Francis insists that one of the five shots, the fairy sunbath, if it's known, which has neither girl in the picture, was genuine. She stated to Cooper, Elsie didn't have anything ready, so we had to take one of them building up in the bushes. Cooper asks her, so that's the first photo of real fairies? Yes. When the two women confessed more publicly to the press in March 1983, Elsie's stance was notably ambiguous. With the Times announcing that the reputations of the world's most famous fairies and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle are in tatters, and pointing up how Doyle had taken one, one hatpin for a fairy's navel, Elsie, now 82, insisted that she was proud of the one photograph which her cousin believes is genuine, adding rather pointedly, I'm sorry someone has stabbed all our fairies to death with a hat pin. Those clinging to this last piece of hard fairy evidence were to be jolted that April when Geoffrey Crawley, now owner of the photographs, wrote to the Times explaining that this picture was merely an unintended double exposure. Come back to that very interesting remark of Elsie. I'm sorry someone has stabbed all our fairies to death with a hat pin. By now, some readers may have hovering in their minds that refreshingly blunt question of my book's opening pages. Do fairies exist? I will say more about this and the question of whether fairies existed at Cottingley in a moment. Before I do, it's hardly less intriguing to ask, what did the Cottingley fairies mean to the world across a century of war, terrorism and unprecedented technological change? And what, first of all, did they mean to Francis and Elsie? As we saw, Doyle was one of that small elite who created literary myths instantly recognisable by name from the 1880s on. It's a very interesting period in literature and culture where you have Alice in Wonderland, uh, you have Sherlock Holmes, you have Peter Pan, you have Dorian Gray, you have uh, Dracula. And uh, later on we get James Bond. And all of these characters are remarkable because you just take the name and the name means a vast amount more than just that word or two words uh, to people who barely perhaps speak, speak English. Uh, 30 years after the birth of Sherlock Holmes, two very ordinary girls created their own unforgettable icons, uh, aided by Holmes's creator. In 1998, long after the whole thing had been exploded, uh, the Times stated, uh, forget Bailey and Litchfield, the two most famous photographers of the century are two Yorkshire cousins. Uh, the images are now so famous and so potent that it's hard to imagine them never having existed. Challenged only by the Disney version of Peter Pan or Tinkerbell, I think, they're perhaps the most easily recognisable fairies of the past hundred years. Surely then, for both Elsie and Francis, in the decades down to 1983, the Cottingley fairies were a source of strange and amazing power. One um, tricky and misleading thing about the relationship between the cousins is that 
Frances was by some way the younger, I think she was about 10 when the whole thing kicked off, and Elsie uh, about 16. Uh, and yet, uh, Frances would later state to Cooper, she was very young for her age of Elsie. She used to play with my dolls. And when we get back to this question of fairy glamour, it's a very different form of glamour in these images and the resultant kind of uh, publicity furore around them than the dark kind of magical glamour which shaded into the world of witchcraft. Uh, the glamour ironically comes from Frances's previous life as a child in South Africa before she came to Cottingley uh, and she stated quite emphatically that she lived uh, in a house with servants, they went to the opera, she had a little fur cape, her father was a sergeant major and she hated coming to Cottingley where it was water time and black bread and cramped up sleeping in the attic with uh, Elsie seen as a kind of romantic image of of girlhood friendship in um, lots of recreations including films so these Parisian sprites with their bobbed hair which looks rather suspect to various observers actually had a certain logic uh, to Francis, who was trying to, if you like, fuse the older glamour of fairies with, for her, a kind of lost glamour of social prestige back in South Africa. So a source of great power to both of the girls. Uh, and neatly enough, this power had the secrecy and the playfulness of the true fairies themselves. Nowhere was that impish defiance of cold positivism more obvious than in the unfinished play, which Elsie began in 1978, just weeks after the slightly comical exposure of the pictures by Randy and co. Elsie's drama opened with Puck gesturing to the unseen stage behind the theatre curtains where a giant oyster shell was surrounded by reporters still vainly trying to prise it open 60 years on. The pearl nestled inside, Puck explained, was either a pearl-bursting joke, or a lustrous pearl of beauty capable of whisking people's imaginations off to gorgeous fairyland places. We might ask now, was it actually both? When the curtains open, all but one of the weary journalists wander off. Having climbed up to sit in baffled contemplation on the giant shell, he finds to his astonishment that two wings expand from each side of the shell and float him away. What else did the Cottingley fairies mean to the wider world? They seemed very quickly to become a kind of British national treasure. In its earliest years, this pearl was closely bound up with the shattering horrors of war. After the traumas of the Somme and Verdun, these five extraordinary frames might appear to distill much of the beauty, peace, grace and innocence which British soldiers had fought to preserve. It is hard to imagine that this nostalgic treasure would have been prized so fiercely had it arisen from the cunning tricks of two boys rather than girls. Fairies had been heavily feminized for decades by this time, and it was the perfect moment to oppose this new version of spiritualized femininity to the masculine suffering and the masculine lunacy of the war and its aftermath. Youth, too, was vital to the mixture. We know this at one level because of the recurrent hints that children could see fairies when most adults could not. It's possible they can. They can certainly see ghosts uh, when adults can't. An article of 1921 quoted Elsie as saying, 
in their more recent appearances, the fairies were more transparent than in 1916 and 1917, when they were rather hard. You see, we were young then. Both Doyle and Gardner also felt that, with the girls growing up fast by 1920, there was little time to be lost if new evidence was to be secured. At another level, we know that youth was important precisely because of the way it was falsely imposed on so many versions of the affair. The 1997 film Fairy Tale, for example, has the 19-year-old Elsie played by a girl who looks no more than 14 and also oddly collapses the events of 1917 and 1920 together as if keen to preserve the girls Peter Pan style in that one ageless Yorkshire summer of the first pictures. Any doubts as to the childishness of Elsie are easily scotched by a glance at the assured and stylish young woman seated behind, beside Hodson in a photograph of 1921. Similarly, the film Fairy Tale manages to play up the idyllic rural side of Cottingley in a way that is less than faithful to the place's more urban qualities. Perhaps most strikingly, it invents a severely wounded soldier missing almost half his face, a uh, topic that's come back into the public consciousness with Lindsay Fitzharris's remarkable book, The Facemaker, uh, just this year. Soldier who is met by Francis on a train and who later rescues the innocent girls from a slimy reporter. When the soldier's notably tremulous query to the girls about the reality of the fairies is answered in the affirmative, the force of his relief, I knew it, I just knew it, is almost metaphysical. This invention not only highlights the sense that, after a certain point, the cousins could not bear to disappoint all the believers they had created, but again underlines the impression that the whole potent fusion, fairies, girls, English nature, offered something free and pure, something worth fighting for and living for once the smoke of war had faded. It was still being fought for a little more prosaically in 1998, when Arthur Wright's original cameras and prints came up for sale. The film Fairy Tale had been produced by Mel Gibson's company, Icon Productions, and Gibson himself makes a fleeting, uncredited cameo appearance in the film as Francis's just returned soldier father. Gibson now bid high for Wright's Cottingley artifacts, thus threatening to take part of the British national treasure abroad. Touchingly, Geoffrey Crawley, who owned the cameras and prints, agreed to let them stay in the UK, provided £14,000 was raised, even though he could have sold to Gibson for much more. This sum was reached with public help and donations from Canon, Jessops and Olympus. In June 1998, the Midge and Cameo cameras, which had shot the very photographs, were given to Bradford's National Museum of Photography, in front of a 2,000 strong crowd chanting fairies coming home. So what do we have here? A British national treasure and something strangely real uh, even after the um, forced confession of Frances. Ironically, um, it was her son after the children had played these jokes on their parents. Uh, Frances's son uh, spotted the 
uh, original book from which they'd taken the images and forced her to confess. But even after she confessed to Cooper there in Canterbury, uh, Francis was clearly very ambivalent. Elsie quite clearly talks about something that by this time was alive, was real uh, in uh, a strange but powerful kind of way. I'm sorry somebody has stabbed our fairies to death with a hat pin. And Francis was to say bitterly to Cooper, um, you're a traitor before slamming down the phone on him, a traitor to a British national uh, treasure. So at the heart of this very, very long running, complicated, strange, and sometimes comically ironic story, we find some powerful questions still burning, still glowing, magically decades after the whole thing kicked off with a simple joke. Uh, it's rightly been said by uh, Simon Young, the folklorist, that in 1917 the girls were out to trick their parents and in 1920 they were out to trick the world. They had a choice at that point and they made it uh, and they did indeed trick the world and I suppose at a certain point it became very difficult to wriggle out of the whole situation that had got well beyond their control. Why have many of us come to value the permanently visible over what people tell us? This is a question that applies to fairy sightings, as I'll be explaining later. And also, as I've explained and will explain at further length, uh, I'm writing a book now called We Need to Talk About Ghosts, is a question about how we value evidence of fairies, of ghosts, of poltergeist activity in a court of law the evidence of people who say something is taken very seriously indeed. Elsewhere, it is often degraded to the status of the merely anecdotal. Let us assume that all five of the Cottingley photographs were fakes. But now listen to what Francis told Cooper about a childhood trip to the Beck. Struck by the shaking of just one single willow leaf, though there was no wind, as I watched a small man, all dressed in green, stood on the branch with the stem of the leaf in his hand, which he seemed to be shaking at something. Presently, he looked straight at me and disappeared. Echoing what we have heard earlier when Elsie was asked by Mitchell in 1976 why the cousins no longer saw fairies at the beck, Francis replied, I think it's really because we were only children. We were very young then. Let's assume for a second, and we better whisper this, that fairies do exist. Are children, for some reason, more likely to see them? Two stories told directly to me by very hard-headed people indicate that children certainly can see ghosts when these are felt by, though not visible, to adults. Something about the relative blankness of the child's mind, its less rigid sense of the impossible, is probably important. And something also, I think, about the lack of ego a uh, point that somebody made to me the other day, very interesting one as well. Let's close our visit to Cottingley with uh, what Cooper heard in the early 1980s from local forester and ex-wrestler Ronnie Bennett, a man who for 20 years had worked in woods in and around Cottingley, often sleeping there through the night. Of his brief encounter with woodland fairies, he stated, I didn't see one, I saw three, and I didn't sleep for three nights after I'd seen what I'd seen. Anyone has any fairy sightings, I would love to 
hear about them. And I'm sure Simon Young would as well. Many thanks for listening. This has been Dark, Dark Histories at the Secret University. And this was the long running saga of the Cottingley Fairy Photographs, 100 years after Arthur Conan Doyle's strangest book, The Coming of the Fairies.